0: Today's guest became a full-time creator in 2016. He has nearly 2.5 million subscribers on YouTube, and he did it by teaching people one of the oldest activities
1: known to mankind, gardening. Because it is the oldest, one of the oldest crafts that humanity even participates in, the advent of the internet meant that gardening was sort of there at the start. A lot of the content was sort of gated off in inaccessible ways or just poor formats. I was like, dude, why do I have to keep going to like the University of Minnesota and like digging through a PDF to like figure the answer out here? Okay, then I'll make the blog. And and that's kind of the, where it all started. That's Kevin Espiritu, the
0: founder and CEO of Epic Gardening. With nearly 300 million views on their YouTube videos alone, Epic Gardening is one of the biggest names in the gardening space. They generated $7.5 million in 2021 alone. And while they may be most known for their video content, Epic Gardening began as a blog. Kevin's team began doing video just a few years ago,
1: but that decision has led to rapid growth. We went from like, I don't know, to 275,000 to 500,000 in a year, which is the fastest I'd ever grown. I mean, shorts have, have contributed like 50 million views this year compared to our, our long form, which is also 50 million views. And that started this year.
0: So in this episode, you'll learn how Epic Gardening transitioned from a blog to a media company, how Kevin operates more like an entrepreneur than a creator, why there may be new opportunities in old industries, and how to create things that other people just aren't willing to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. As you listen, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Klaus. tag me, say hello. And now let's talk to Kevin about the start of Epic Gardening.
1: Yeah, it started in 2016. I mean, it was it was a hobby blog and YouTube channel before that, just making like literally four hundred dollars a month, perhaps. So it was like a nice little supplement and a way to for me to kind of practice making content. But yeah, 2016, I had I left the job and, and went full time on Epic.
0: I would love to kind of go at a high level year by year through that, because there are probably a lot of people listening to this who in some regards started dabbling in this world as early as 2016 or 2017. And are thinking to themselves, wow, that type of growth is possible in this period of time. So I'd love to hear in retrospect, you know, how you would bucket those years in your mind and some of the some of the important decisions or areas of focus you had Mm -hmm. at the right times to make this possible.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. If we start with 2016, call that half a year because I quit uh, the job in June quit slash would have been fired. So pick your poison, Which whichever one it was. It was <laughs> my ego wants to say I quit more than I would have been fired, but either way. Um, so yeah, that, that year was really like scale up. It was like systemize and figure out how to actually generate some sustainable income. Like I said, it was probably making 400 bucks a month, the epic empire at that time. So then it was write a bunch of articles uh on on gardening sort of try to codify some of the knowledge i'd learned over the last couple of years of growing and, and systemize that in some way and and maybe get some initial writing help and perhaps promote the, those articles so really it was just blog focused at the time 2017 is when i had like some semblance of a team so i hired my first writer and I kind of moved on to different aspects of, of the business, like maybe dabbling in YouTube a little bit more, but also just getting out there and like promoting the articles and commenting in all different sorts of communities and just trying to build a name. 2018 would have been a bit more of a dabble into YouTube, uh, a bit more hiring. So more writers, uh, the podcast would have launched. I think probably in 2017, but really would have scaled into 2018. And that was a daily show, like three to five minutes a day. So another example of like getting into a different media format, especially in the garden, like if you're in the garden, you're not by definition watching anything. You you might be listening to something. So I was like, well, if I can get in people's ears, that might be a great way to, you know, put, put the message out there. 2019 was a big change. That was the first foray into physical product. So I had realized at that point in time, look, you're making... Revenue off of ads, brands, and perhaps some affiliate deals or something like that, but all of those really are third party controlled. Uh, and you don't really control the source of those in any fundamental way. Amazon could change a commission tier, or, or your traffic could go down. So I got into products and and sold some raised beds that I distributed out of Australia, still do to this day, and that was explosive. I mean, that immediately that was half of our entire revenue, and so that's when the light bulb went on for me, and I was like, yeah, why. Why do all these brand deals, not that they're bad, but just why focus on that when I should just be the brand? You know, the the brand's paying you for access to an exclusive audience of engaged people. Well, if you're the one who owns that, why why wouldn't you just serve the audience directly? So that was big year, 2020 obviously, we had a global pandemic which weirdly um, boosted many categories, mostly ones in the creator space, right? So gardening, baking, carpentry fence, everything blew up. So that was just, I was just running and gunning. I mean, that was like, how much inventory can I buy? How quickly can I put it up on the store? How quickly can I get it to sell? And the answer was like, immediately. We were selling stuff out like well before it even arrived at at the port. Um, so 2020 was a crazy scale up. And then 2021 was even more of that because the pandemic sort of lockdown stuff lasted another year. And so that was another explosive year. This year it's been uh, like scale up as far as the team goes. So building out the team, we, we took on investment late last year and it's like building up the team, I'd say professionalizing the operation a lot more. Uh, so that's my, that's my highest level version of those years. I hope people listening to this are getting a sense for where I want to go with this conversation, because
0: even the way you describe those years and your focus, it's like you traversed different identities mm-hmm. or could have, you know, depending on where you started, because you, you started in this place of, okay, blogging SEO. And then you transition this place that seems more creator. Then you transitioned into e-commerce, and you know the top is the, the highest level of all of that is like okay, Kevin's an entrepreneur. Like Kevin's thinking about this as mm-hmm. a business and not as uh, a lifestyle hobby necessarily. Can you talk about your your mindset through those years and if you did kind of traverse those identities or you know how that's felt inside your brain as you've made these? Yeah, shows? that's
1: actually a really good question. The interesting thing, I guess, about myself is that I was creating after I was entrepreneuring, or at least trying to. So prior to 2016, I'd worked at a company called Scribe Media um, as an early employee there and learned a lot. That's the only like real job I've I've ever had in my life besides jobs as a kid. Before that, so like early 20s to mid mid 20s was mostly me just like falling on my ass trying a bunch of like shoddy business ideas or maybe the idea wasn't shoddy, but my execution was perhaps. Um, So yeah, I mean, identity wise, I've always felt I'm not like a YouTuber or I'm not a TikToker or an Instagrammer or a podcaster. Technically I'm all of them, but I don't think I'm any of them, nor really an entrepreneur, I guess. So I don't have like a mental conception of some sort of label that I, that I am, which I don't know how significant that is or not to the answer of this question. But to me, it helps because then I don't pigeonhole myself in a way of thought that will hinder potential growth. If I had to pick, I'd say I'm a YouTuber and maybe a business person or something, but I even YouTube, I'm like, I I guess I'm not really a traditional YouTuber. So I I don't connect to those identities like that. Maybe it's helped. I
0: do think it helps because, you know, I listened to another conversation you had on the authority hacker podcast. And you mentioned that I think in 2016, you said you made around 17 K total with those $400 months and 2017 is around 78 K. So a lot of people experiencing that type of growth, I think would basically continue what they're doing and try to just do more of it mm-hmm. because like that's a huge growth trajectory. But throughout those years it was like you were really adding layers to the strategy, you know, because 2018 after that year is when you said you introduced really Instagram, YouTube and the podcast and branching out from the articles. So I do think that helps to not have an identity you're holding to. Mm-hmm. But related to identity sometimes is uh, community and the people that you surround yourself with. I imagine those early years, you're probably surrounding yourself with other SEOs. Mm-hmm. And the advice and direction you would probably get from a lot of people in that community is, yeah, keep doing what you're doing and here are some changes on that or some ways to enhance it versus, yeah, go do Instagram and YouTube.
1: Yeah, actually a lot of the SEOs back in those days, because I was very plugged into the SEO community at one time, just could not understand why I was spending time on, on Instagram. They're like, well, how does that build links? It doesn't build links. So it doesn't matter. I'm like, what? Like that's not, it's a different game. And so you're totally right. Like, you know, 17 K obviously not, not a high income in 2016. Um, and even 78 K, I mean, that's, that's gross revenue, uh, and you're running a business, you have costs, you have taxes, et cetera. So you're not making that much relative to even just any job I could have gotten, um, with my skill set at the time. But yeah, you're right. Like if I had scaled linearly through the actions I was taking in 2017, I would just be a bigger blog, right? Instead of this sort of multimedia thing. And so I think that's what perhaps a lot of creators, I see a lot of creators make this mistake, at least in my opinion, they might have a different goal. So that's totally fine to do it their way. But you know, like a a YouTuber, for example, that posts once a week, every week for 10 years, and that's all they want to do. But also is sort of sad that they're not making X, Y, or Z or have a certain level of of accomplishment elsewhere, I'm like, well, yeah, because you're the game you're playing caps at a certain level. Uh, it can only do a certain thing, and so you, you do have to kind of get out of a particular bubble to to go further.
0: Were you feeling capped in 2018 when you started doing more of the social media discovery platform stuff with Instagram and YouTube?
1: No, I don't think so in 2018 because there was just so much opportunity. That was like a great year. Besides besides the advent of TikTok, like maybe 2016, 17, 18 was a Good couple of years for actually growing on on social without having your without it sort of being a slog. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity there. I think the bet in 2018 that I started to see is I was like, yeah, if you have all of the media, it doesn't really matter if you monetize it immediately because you have all the media and you build you build a thriving community just wait and let the community tell you how to serve them best which is kind of what happened with those those raised beds I didn't think about selling those they just were commented on relentlessly uh, and I was like well maybe I should sell them right it wasn't some genius thought speaking of talk to me about
0: the the selection of gardening in the first place because this is like one of the oldest things in the world like we are an agra- agrarian is that the right word Agrarian mm-hmm. yeah, species. Yeah. you know you would think that from the dawn of the internet this would be something that would be dominated online because we've just been doing it for forever but you found this opportunity and now you guys have the largest gardening education platform online so how did you identify that was there like an insight where you saw there
1: was a gap here yeah i think the for the reasons that you mentioned that's why it was an opportunity. Also, I loved it. I mean, that was the, the first thing is I love doing it. Um, so that that of course has to come first. But because it is the oldest one of the oldest crafts that humanity even participates in and, and sort of mandatory to some degree, whether you call it farming or, or, or gardening, the advent of the Internet meant that gardening was sort of there at the start which means that a lot of the content was sort of gated off in inaccessible ways or just poor formats. And so, you know, a lot of gardening information is written still um, by an older demographic for an older demographic in the language of someone who already knows what they're talking about. Uh, You know, maybe on a, on a PDF, which of course is would be atrocious for SEO, let alone, you know, presenting it in a video format in an engaging way, from someone who's like, oh, I kind of could be like that guy or that girl. It it just wasn't as accessible. So when I was trying to learn back in the day, I was like, dude, why do I have to keep going to like the university of Minnesota and like digging through a PDF to like figure the answer out here? Okay. Then I'll make the blog. and And that's kind of the, where it all started.
0: Man, that's such a interesting insight and so good. You know, I, I aspire to the life of an author a lot of times. And I'll look at some of these authors who have built an incredible life for themselves and Ryan Holiday is one that comes to mind because the stuff he writes about, it's ancient stuff. Mm-hmm. But the really cool thing is, because it kind of like was ancient stuff and then hadn't really been re-skinned, re-examined for modern people, the work he put into creating that canon of work is now like a competitive advantage. It's going to be hard to catch up to him. It's not like there are other people who have studied this in the modern day as much as he has and so I, I've been really fascinated by trying to look at more timeless human problems that aren't being re-examined in a modern time. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's
1: opportunity there. Dude, for sure. I mean, like we're seeing this happen everywhere. And actually, the internet's old enough now that you're seeing it rehappen to the same the, the same person. There's a guy, uh, I don't know his name, but he's a YouTuber who sort of debunks myths that are sort of viral like viral meme sort of myth scientific things and so he's an og youtuber and he's having his own sort of content repurposed and completely reshot of course it's like they're taking his concepts like i don't even know what a myth would be off the top of my head but just make one up in your head uh, and there'll be a TikTok about it and he's like yeah i disproved this like six years ago and this YouTube video with 7 million <laughs> views, but this one has 30 million views in short form. It's the same idea. And I'm like, yeah, it's because that's how people are consuming it today. So the same thing can be repackaged. And yes, I mean, Ryan Holiday, obviously has done a fantastic job with his his work with the Stoics. Since you basically
0: were tuned into and seem to have a good start on platforms earlier on mm-hmm. in their existence, what are you looking at now? It seems like you mentioned TikTok a couple of times. It seems like TikTok is where the most recent opportunity is but I'm sure even that window has closed to some degree or mm-hmm. is closing. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you look at new trends in terms of how people are consuming
1: information and how to be ahead of the curve? Yeah, I mean TikTok to me was one of the best things that happened to the creator landscape in maybe 5 years or so because it finally forced every platform to say Oh, okay. I guess I'll give you reach again. Um, not to say—I mean, that's a common complaint. Like, oh, the algorithm's not giving me reach. I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm just saying that like TikTok affected the attention landscape in like a seismic way, which then forced Instagram to release Reels. And although they will never say it, I'll bet a lot of money that if you use their newest feature, it's more likely to do well than to go put up an IGTV video the second they drop Reels. So, so you know, we went from TikTok. In 2019 and being one of the first gardening accounts there if any humans into gardening you're the only one so the attention goes straight to you you don't even have to be good um so that's sort of a weird insight if you're early you actually could be bad and you could still grow quicker than someone who's better than you at content Uh, but then yeah porting that over to ig we went from like, I don't know, to 275,000 to 500,000 in a year, which is the fastest I'd ever grown, just by reposting the same things or also creating new mm-hmm. reels. And then shorts this year, I mean, shorts have, have contributed like 50 million views this year compared to our our long form, which is also 50 million views. And that started this year. And so it's like, the thing I, I, I guess I don't get when I hear a lot of sort of creators talk about growth, et cetera, is I'm like... Well, it's not the algorithm that's really saying, oh, like, you know, everyone's watching short form now. It's, it's actually the people, you know, e- everyone in aggregate is watching short form. So if you want to fight against a tide, go for it, but you can't really complain that you're, you're getting swept down the river. And so to me, it's like, t- take a bet on these platforms. I was like, hey, look, worst case TikTok is is terrible. It, it tanks. And now I, I've i learned how to make a different type of content. I can probably use it in in my other formats somehow. So to me, it's a, it's a no risk bet.
0: After a quick break, Kevin and I talk about his approach to short form content, and later, we talk about his process for creating videos. So stick around, and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business, and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator, too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, UScreen. UScreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. UScreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with UScreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, UScreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit That's uscreen.link/j. That's u s slash e e n.link/j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash creator. And now back to the show. The thing that would probably hang me up if I was in your position and would it actually kind of bums me out to this day. So much of the content we create for social media, it's just gone. Mm. You know, you have this, you have this training in writing articles or, you know, at this point, maybe overseeing the creation of articles that have this enduring compounding power in that one asset. Same with YouTube videos. But now that you're super active on social, how do you think about the role of short form as it relates to what long form and having an asset that's leverageable over time does for you.
1: Yeah, it is kind of frustrating, right? I mean, back in the early days of of Instagram, before Reels, for example, you would do like certainly a post, just like an image post or, or a, a short square crop video. And you're like, yeah, this just kind of goes into the Instagram abyss. You don't really recover it. You've edited it particularly for the platform. It's kind of hard to repurpose. And you're sort of like, actually, where is the ROI, though? It does, it does come down to that. And so my my thought then was always like, my ROI is in the brains of the people that, that content helped. And hopefully that compounds over time. And And I might not even know uh, the, the, the exact ROI. Cause it's kind of the same with podcasts. Like unless someone goes and downloads the whole back catalog, it is kind of gone. There's no resurfacing engine there, except for you you get an email like, hey, I've actually downloaded your whole podcast, I'm a trucker, and I've sent it to 15 other truckers, and now you know there's 15 people out there listening to 300 episodes. That kind of stuff will happen, right? And so, I don't know, I mean, I guess I just trust that if the content's good enough and valuable enough, it kind of bounces around digitally and offline in a way you can't really manage.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the direct marketing versus brand marketing dichotomy, Mm -hmm. where like direct marketing, you're really measuring return on spend. And brand marketing, you're hoping that it returns, and you believe that it does, and you keep investing in it. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> as long as you don't see signs of the contrary, you
0: keep doing. Yeah, I, guess it, I guess it's
1: like the content variant of that of that dichotomy, right? Yeah, that makes sense.
0: How do you look at uh, YouTube Shorts versus your YouTube long form? Do you think of them as two different audiences? Do you think of them as an intertwined
1: strategy? Right now, I think of them more as separate audiences than as intertwined. What's interesting though about gardening is that the short form can be a bite-sized piece of the larger tapestry of of content that we have in in our library, because it's still at my house or some of our creators' houses. And so there is more to say about a particular plant, like, I don't know, dragon fruit. You can give a really unique fact or show it blooming in a time-lapse. That's a great short form piece. But if someone does get captivated, and obviously the hit rate's way lower because the reach is expanded. So you're hit, your hit, you know, someone might be, 5% of people might be interested in watching the long form versus 90 if they're searching for it on the normal feed but still i mean that's that's a huge number so they can trickle trickle through i guess i almost view it as an on platform variant of tiktok cuz the way that the way that creators were getting huge over the last couple of years is like you blow up on tiktok you then start an in, in IG because most of these creators are young enough to not really engage with IG. So they start an IG. Um, maybe they they cross post, but then they start a YouTube. They cross post their YouTube shorts, build an audience there. Then they learn how to do long form because they don't understand it. So that's the way people have been building audience. So I, I don't know. I mean, the question is how valuable is a long form view versus short form view? Right now, I feel like a short form view, even on YouTube is like maybe a 10th of of the value, maybe, Hmm. but, but hopefully we get better tools to figure that out because it's, it's clearly eating the world of attention. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing if you're trying to sell a product or service or whatever.
0: So when you made this first bet into physical products and you bought these raised beds, Mm -hmm. I I heard you say that that was a $30,000 investment Mm -hmm. to bring these things in. What did that feel like to you at
1: the stage that you were? How big of an investment was $30,000 at the time? Let me think. I I don't know. I couldn't tell you a a rough percentage, but I would say it was maybe how much money did the business have at that time? I mean, I I don't think we had over 200,000 in our accounts. I mean, I think we probably had 110 or 120 or something like that. And that was probably, there was probably some taxes mixed in there. Like I couldn't even tell you the actual weighting of it. But suffice to say, like if it was a bet on your net worth, it probably would have been unsound. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, it, I was like, well, this is a car. I mean, you're buying like a Camry or something and, and in one play. But my my logic there is I was like, okay, well, it's far and away the most requested thing. What's the worst case scenario? I sell them at cost and I lose a few thousand. Like that, that seems fine to me. And and then what's the upside, of course, is that you make your, your product margin on that. And so, yeah, I mean, this, the scary part for me is that I literally knew zero about e-com. My plan, which I still can't believe I thought this at the time, was to buy the container, 20-foot container, so it's a little smaller than normal. And then I was arranging a self-storage facility um, in San Diego, and I was going to have the container land at the port in Long Beach, be trucked down to a literal self-storage facility, like at Costco or something <laughs> like that, unload it by hand, figure out how to get like, like tether a laptop there and print and ship orders out of a cell. Cause I was like, I don't know where to put it. Obviously where do you put it? And then I got wise and talked to a couple of friends about e and they're like, what the hell are you doing dude just get like a <laughs> third party logistics company to help you at the start shipping the orders out. And I was like, okay, cool. There you go. So yeah, it was scary, less so in the money. I was pretty confident that the risk wasn't big, but it was more scary in like just the logistics of what do I actually do?
0: Yeah. And now that you guys have these products that you are selling do you see that people are converting from a short form on a product to purchasing or does it need to be like an introduction to the larger Epic Gardening ecosystem before they begin purchasing?
1: I think if it's, if it's a, an easily accessible product, like if it's a $10 little tool or something like that, it's way easier to convert that direct. That being said, it's also hard to attribute perfectly like, from TikTok to a link click to a product page to a conversion it's like actually quite difficult to attribute that and be really confident that that's where it came from um so yeah i mean i would say yes on the on the low end but on the high end i actually don't even know the answer it's it's hard to know even if i didn't have shorts in the epic ecosystem at all it's still kind of hard to know because we have so many platforms it's like okay do they come in through the blog and then click three things get read you know get a text and then convert i don't know attribution is like very, I don't know. It's a nightmare. So what do you pay attention to, to know
0: that things are trending in the right direction? Like what are the KPIs that you're looking at with attribution being difficult
1: to dial in on? Yeah. I mean, I think every platform obviously has sort of a different KPI you want to hold as, as a head like TikTok, for example, I would say it's really mostly how many views and comments and saves and shares like that kind of thing. It's, it's sort of just raw on platform metrics and then YouTube I would say it'd be it'd be like CTR and retention at the start but then that dissipates to just views at the end because because really optimizing for ctR and, and and that sort of thing works and then if the content fails it's it's not you know you're not going to get views off of that and so over the longest period of time actually just optimizing for views is the right thing to do except for that when you tell that to people they're like well okay well what do I That's like, so how how do do I do that? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it'd be be reach and audience growth. It sounds like throughout your career, you've had this insight
0: of, let me just go ask somebody who's already solved this, which is such a hack.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) dude, like the things that we're doing as creators, it's not novel. In like right. in in the aggregate, I actually think it's quite novel. If you were to sum up all the parts of an operation like Epic or or these other ones that are out there that are doing incredible things, certainly that's novel. But like the mechanics of it are not. How do you get a container from from you know Australia to America? It's been done for de- decades. It, someone knows how to do it. Just go find the person and, and have them help, uh, and then you sort of piece together all that knowledge. Because we're what are creators typically good at is is usually connecting with with people creating valuable content. We're not typically the best at in the business logistics. Uh, not, not this is a sweeping statement, but you get my point. I think I'm going to put on
0: the hat of creator or aspiring creator who wants to get started mm-hmm. and is listening to this. And your story was you had a passion, you started a blog, then you went to uh, social media and YouTube, then you did e-com. And now you have all of these things working in concert, which is just like next level business. How would you encourage someone starting today in the current landscape?
1: I wish I had a strong answer here because obviously the way I did it is probably not ideal. It's it's kind of slow, but I would say short form video. I mean, it's probably a trite answer. Everyone everyone would say that. But what else is there right now that's going to get you rapid iterations? Because to get good at content, you, you have to do a lot of it and then figure out what works and what doesn't. You have to become more comfortable with yourself and all sorts of different little skill sets. And so I would say short form video is a great way to do it. TikTok is the most rewarding algorithm right now still. Uh, I, maybe YouTube, but YouTube takes a little bit longer to, to pick something up if, it, if it's actually good. TikTok's good because it, it seems to know much better um, how to find the audience that something would resonate with and how to find it quickly and pour gas if it's working, which for you as a young creator would tell you if you're hitting or if you're not much quicker and the iteration rate is probably what what is most important as a young creator you just need mm-hmm. to figure out how to get good um so i would say tiktok and then you would probably want to transition much like the flow i was telling you about earlier like tiktok you know uh, ig reels and 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 uh youtube shorts uh, and then maybe experiment with like 2 to 3 minute long form videos and kind of grow yourself into the long form which all of us o- older <laughs> creators we we all did long form first so it's an odd switch What about the current state of SEO and blogging? Where do you see that playing in new creator's journey, if at all? I mean, I think it's extremely smart, especially if you're trying to scale something like like we're trying to do. You almost mandatory have to have it because you have to have like uh, intent-based, customer-based or audience-based. Like, how do I do this? What is this? Um, Those types of queries... Yes, certainly like TikTok's eating a little bit of that. Maybe someone's typing into YouTube, but like Google's still Google. I mean, 98% of the revenue still ads right in that search box. And so to me, it's a totally different brain though. Like an SEO brain is a totally different brain than a video brain for the most part. Uh, I, I've never seen SEOs be super comfortable with video unless they like don't think they're one. And so, yeah, I, I would say... Uh, let's say a creator like got really big off, I don't know, carpentry and was doing video stuff. Like the smartest play is probably just to hire an editor who knows SEO and can manage some writers and can build you a corpus of content on on in a written format and like learn how to rank it. Because otherwise you're going to have to learn SEO. It's like takes kind of a while.
0: And when I hear people talk about SEO on the show, a lot of times they're talking about article SEO. Mm-hmm. Obviously YouTube has SEO as well as like the second largest search engine in the world.
1: How much does YouTube SEO play into your guys' strategy? Yeah, for us, I think in our space, it actually is significant because let's say we make uh, a video on I don't know cabbage, and it is just objectively the best video. No one can argue it. It's it's for sure like ten times better than the next best video. We should probably just call it "How to Grow Cabbage Complete Guide." <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if it's yeah. if it truly is the best. It, the title won't, I don't think will matter that much. Like you might as well just go straight for the search and let it play out. I don't think you should go like, I grew an insane cabbage. Like what, you know, um, <laughs> that, but, but that it, it, kind of depends on the channel too. Like we haven't, I have a channel called Epic Homesteading, which is much smaller. It's like 165,000 subscribers, which, which I run more as a personality based channel. So titles will be much different. And, and, but, but that's because the topic's different. Like I have a, I had a video called like, I'm sick of my garden, there's no SEO around that. There's no searchability to it. So you, you have to play the, the title game a little bit differently.
0: When we come back, Kevin and I dig into his process for producing long-form videos on the Epic Gardening channel. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, When you're making these videos, let's say let's keep this cabbage example going because I I I love the idea of us being Cabbage Patch Kids right now. There we go. So if you were going to say we're going to make the best video on growing cabbage, what would your process be to make sure you make the best video on growing cabbage? Like, what are the boxes you're trying to uh, check to say objectively this is better than the other content on YouTube? Yeah,
1: I actually think that's not that hard to do, to be honest with you. So like the way you would do it, or I would do it, is. First of all, I would look at the other cabbage videos, right? I'd say, okay, well, there's probably five ones that are even close to good. So you go, you go look at those, you say, okay, what, what are the titles? What are the thumbnails of those ones? Are what's wrong with the title and thumbnail? What, why is it bad? And then you go, you go look at the content and you'd say, Okay, well, are they are they missing something fundamental? I mean, that that would be the most obvious thing. But to me, I would go ground up. I'd say, well, what, what would the best cabbage video be? So there's like the an- analysis of the outside. Then there's the bottom up mm-hmm. sort of thinking. Like, well, what would the best cabbage video be? It would probably be a video where you literally grow cabbage from start to finish, from seed to harvest, and then layered in all of the things that make that video engaging. So like a good personality, maybe some humor, beautiful shots, some, some crispy B-roll, maybe a little bit of music, like all, all the different things that make videos good, in the packaging of, of the best presentation of the idea, which would be, in my opinion, at least growing something from seed to harvest would show you how to grow cabbage best. Do, do most people do that? No, it's like pretty hard to do. I mean, the, the shortest crop would take a month to make that video. So what are we doing now? We're, we're, we're growing 25 crops at least right now from seed to harvest starting now that will drop in spring. And some of those might not even come out this year. They'll come out maybe in 24 or something like that. Cause I'm like that, H- that that would be the best. So that, that's kind of how I think about it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, th- and my mind says, holy shit, that would take forever. That's hard. And you now have to wait this period of time and layer in, well, if we want to continue to publish, what are the things we're publishing in the meantime? So you're managing a, pipe, uh, uh, a pipeline of a bunch of videos mm-hmm. and a bunch of short form and probably written content as well. How do you manage that? Yeah, not super well right
1: now <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, we we do have a, a head of content higher than i'm I'm going to be making because like right now I function as CEO head of head of like I'm, I'm the main talent still. We have uh, three other creators, but I'm still like the main one and then I'm also head of content. so it's like one of those has to break and the two that can't break are probably CEO and head of talent. so we need a head of content. so yeah we, we need a way, especially in gardening, we need a way to layer a season over uh, the tapestry of platforms and creators that we have and sort of assign topics and formats and and talent to those so that it comes out in this like beautiful um, symphony, I suppose, of, of content across the year. We don't really have that right now. We sort of run and gun based on what we're doing at the time. So yeah, I don't have a great answer there yet, but hopefully that changes. To be honest, I'm kind of glad that you don't because
0: I think that makes this feel a little bit more doable to somebody listening to think that like, well, you are having this incredible success and there are still things that you don't have down to like the perfect system level mm-hmm. yet, you know? And a lot of people listening to this, they, they probably index much further on the creator identity. And so all they're thinking about is creating stuff. Yeah. So I think that's actually probably helpful for them to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dude, I w- really, really. I think if you're listening, it's like, I just was blogging in a room for 12 hours a day for three months when I started this thing. It's like, there's nothing super magical about what we've done. Like, I think like I don't know, man, like luck and success that there's that whole debate of of those two sort of interplay, like hard work versus luck. It's obviously both. Um, so like Epic without the pandemic would be a different company, We'd still be doing very well, but we wouldn't be doing as well as we're doing now. That's just the truth. So that I, I would say don't don't mark yourself to someone else's uh, reality. It's not a good recipe for success. I would love to talk a little bit about
0: hiring because something else about your story that I admire is how quickly you were willing to hire help first on the article writing side, I believe. And now you have a team of 20 plus people. Yeah, soon to be 80 plus people. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how early you think creators should
1: consider hiring and how you would go about doing it. If you have some some revenue coming in, I'd say like, if I, let's say I was doing Epic again, for example, I would just be hiring dramatically faster than I did. I was too slow to to hire, really. I mean, the the way I hired the first writer, for example, is I had quit the job, I was writing, I think I wrote the first 450 articles on the blog. Wow. Um, and then I was like, hmm, maybe I should do something different now because it doesn't seem like this is gonna get me where I wanna go. And so I kind of ranked my time in the week and I was like, okay, is, it, is this task humanly possible to be done by someone else? Obviously writing is. How important is it that I'm writing? Well, it's kind of important. Like you have to know about gardening, obviously. Am I the only one who can know about gardening? No, right? And so that was kind of the logic on that. And then every time I just wanted to move towards my highest leverage activity. And then every time that stopped having that leverage, I had to to hire. And I think that's really the way to do it. I I don't know that it's any more complicated than that. What about
0: management of people? Do you see that as a skill set that you have and are good at and that's allowed you to
1: do this or is this something you've had to learn for sure i've had to learn it because i i and i don't even think i'm that strong at it to this day i think the the company is probably better off if i'm left to my own devices and other people are managing the people especially with a team this large now i mean there's like multiple layers i certainly can't have like 25 direct reports like it just doesn't make sense again, it's probably one of those things where my leverage is best used elsewhere than managing the team. Someone else is probably already better at, at it than me. And it's not even mandatory that I do it. Although I kind of like it to some degree. I mean, I just, I like my team. I like to talk to them and stuff. That's an unlock that
0: I need to have, which is hiring doesn't always mean management of all of the people you have hired. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a hard thing for me to like really viscerally feel and understand because every time I'm confronted with the idea of hiring somebody else, my mind goes towards, yeah, but then I have to manage that person. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that holds me up more than anything else. (laughs) How many people do you have on your team now? I mean, it's all contractors and, and partnerships because of this block, Mm. because it, it, it feels, uh, one, like intimidating to now have salaries on the books for all sure. of these people. Yeah. How do you think about that? Do you, do you feel the weight of uh, the promise
1: you've made to dozens of people? Yeah. I mean, that's. I would say that's by far the most stressful piece of this is if you're building a machine that gets more and more complex and, and sort of grand over time, well, the, the machine has to keep running, right? I mean, your team members are individuals that have their own goals for their own lives that of course, a lot of it might overlap, especially when they're working for you, but they want to make more money, they want to have more success, just like just like you do. And so you're like, okay, well, this company has to grow uh, so that it can do well, but also so that um, you know, my team can get the raises and bonuses that they want and can buy the house that they want and et cetera, et cetera. So that that I think is the most stressful piece. So I totally hear you on that. I mean, I think on I don't know. I mean, tell me what you think here, but like, you could hire someone that is specifically designed to manage all the contractors that you have. For example, totally, um, and and yeah. then you manage one person. I
0: could hire somebody who is explicitly hired to help me create SOPs for all the stuff that I
1: am unwilling to spend the time
0: creating SOPs for.
1: Right <laughs> I'll, I'll say this: like when we so in 2021, the end of last year is when we raised um, some some investment capital. And at that time, I had uh, one, two, three, four contractors, and we we did 7 point3 million in revenue. Uh, and I was just like, I don't even know of another person out there that has scaled to that level with that small team, which is cool, sure, but also probably dumb, right? Probably not the smartest move. And so when we when we started to hire, our first hire was a director of commerce. Uh, cause commerce is obviously a huge, huge piece of the business, but the second hire was like a baller executive assistant. And that to me personally, at least was the biggest unlock because she's so talented that she just takes so much off the plate that I shouldn't be doing that. It, there you go. So it's kind of, it's, it sounds like kind of the same thing. Yeah, you know? totally. And the other fear that
0: I have, like how, how much fear do you have about that executive assistant changing her goals in life, getting a even better job offer, like, mm-hmm how do you feel
1: about that well she she has already changed her goals in life so so she wants to take on more responsibilities in like people in hr especially because now there's a lot of people here so there's 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 opportunity for that so i think you can't hold back your your team members from doing what they want to do And you should reward them for being good, right? So yeah, maybe some incredible offer comes off the table and she's like, you know what, I'm actually going to go take this, but I should do my best job to make sure that the most incredible offer comes from us. Uh, And so not hampering her is good. And then you know, the expectation is if she does move into a functionally different role that she's going to hire and bring on the next her. That's the best you can do, I think. So good. If somebody has a lot of energy and a lot of ambition Mm -hmm.
0: and they're willing to put in six years to build something big, there's, there is implications on the quality of an opportunity probably, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like, so how would you vet an idea to say, is this something that's worth going all in on, or should I spend more time finding something else?
1: Hmm, okay. Well, I mean, I think you could, it would have, it would have to be, I've never been asked this. It would have to be some intersection of like the actual addressable market for the space. So obviously like being in hydroponics versus being in gardening, it's obvious gardening is a bigger opportunity because it's hydroponics is a subset of gardening. So I would I would look at some sort of intersection between what you would be interested in cuz it would be difficult to continue something you were bored by. The the overall size of it. Uh, And then also sort of the antiquatedness of either the attention landscape of the space or the commerce slash service landscape of the space. So like some intersection of maybe all four of those. So I would say a friend of mine, um, he thinks that's true in construction, uh, especially online. And I'm like, yeah, it might be. I don't know enough, but certainly it's a massive space. There's an infinite amount of product you could sell into it. And I think there are some really great creators in that space for sure, but I don't necessarily know. I've seen one that's that's going huge. So that might be a good example. That's, I don't know. That's the best way I could think
0: about it. Can you say more about that phrase you used, antiquatedness of the attention in the landscape? I think I know what you mean, mm. but I think it's a really important idea for people to, to grasp onto.
1: Sure, yeah. So like, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of go back to gardening, right? Like in the early days when I started, again, like, how easy is it for you to get an answer to a question you have about that that topic in a way that that you enjoy getting it if that if that answer is low it's like hard to get that there's probably opportunity for someone to come in and shake it up like you know like let's say Ryan Holiday didn't exist and and maybe and maybe no one had touched the stoics since the stoics existed right okay well then the antiquatedness of the Attention landscape. I don't think that's a good phrase, by the way, but either way, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's intuitive. You'd least. have to go to the Greeks or whatever. I don't even know who they yeah. were, but you'd have to go like translate the text with like a Rosetta Stone. Like clearly there's some opportunity there to, to modernize, right? So I would look at fields like that where is there a fresh way to say this? Yeah, there's also an, uh, a warning that I should probably
0: give people in the Ryan Holiday Stoic example there was a lot of awareness and marketing of the concepts he had to do to bring it to the forefront. It wasn't as if there was like a world of people clamoring for information about stoicism. He's like, here I am. I'm the guy that has it now. He actually had to build kind of the other side of the marketplace too. Mm-hmm. And in gardening, like that's never really left us. Like it's probably waxed and waned in popularity at certain times, but it it didn't get like buried for, you know, centuries. So yeah, it seems like if you're looking at these opportunities, I like the, uh, the two sided of, where can i not find something that or where can i not easily get the answer to something i'm looking for and where am i confident there is attention looking for yeah yeah actively
1: yeah i mean i think that's that's actually a really good point like i i think there are some like flash in the pan creators it's not their own fault it's just what they happen to talk about does not have a long half life right so gardening is is obviously one where the the thing i love about it is like politically even in our audience, like Epic does not get into politics because our missions teach the world to grow. Obviously the world does not have the same politics. So there's no point in us talking about it. It's an interesting space where like people from all walks of life can connect over it as long as they don't talk about the things they disagree on, you know, but there's a lot of spaces where it's not like that, which is kind of cool. So I think you're totally right. Like I see a lot of these younger creators that are doing like Uh, a paint mixing channel or something like that. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, it's so cool. It's so fun to watch. Where does it go on a long-term timeline? Are you that guy who did paint mixing for two years or is it actually something that's going to work? You know, it's some of them are just harder to make work.
0: Do you have anything that you believe to be true about this creator business that we're doing, but don't have any data to support it yet?
1: Yeah, I think I do. So the thing I think is that Basically, what will happen is the same thing that happens everywhere, which will be that in any space, gardening, uh, carpentry, the meta, aka creators for creators, etc., the power law will apply to everything, right? So there will be one beast, right? As far as like YouTube sensationalism, there's one beast. Then there's everyone who's trying to be him, but you can't be the thing that that was the original thing. You can never surpass. So there, will be one of ones will will take the attention landscape for their particular category, and everyone else will try to do that. And the real big successes will be the people who are the first and or best at a particular thing. Uh, and so everyone else will will effectively be sort of like a middle class earner um, or success. And, and yeah, that that, that that's that, that's what I think. I mean, I think like. There'll be the CBS, ABC, and NBC of fitness, and then there'll be everyone else, like the Bravo. And, and Bravo will never get to CBS uh, because of the way that compounding works on the internet. That's what I think is gonna happen.
0: If you want to learn more about Kevin, you can visit his website, epicgardening.com or subscribe to the Epic Gardening channel on YouTube. Links to all of that are in the show notes. Thanks to Kevin for being on the show. Thank you to Connor Connoboy for editing this video. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Toddhunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at Jay Klaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.